Welcome to the show. My guest this week is a bloke who's appeared on The Simpsons. Ken Levine is a writer, director and producer. You've enjoyed his work on MASH, Cheers, Frasier, Everybody Loves Raymond and loads of other stuff. His podcast is called Hollywood and Levine. Hear from Ken Levine soon. Ian Dale from LBC will also be on the programme. Find out from him what it's been like broadcasting from his bedroom. I'll talk about why we should stop kids reading books and get them to spend more time on their gadgets with Zoe Kleinman and Susanna Streeter from the Backspace and Beyond podcast. And Barry from EastEnders, Sean Williamson, he'll be on to talk about a time when alcohol played too big a part in his life. It's all coming up with me, Graham Mack, and you'll be glad to know. To keep you safe, the Pod20 microphone is wearing a face mask. This is the Pod 20, heard on podcast radio on DAB in London, Manchester and Glasgow, on demand in the USA at talkers.com and around the world on multiple platforms and as a podcast itself. It's the weekly show where I count down the top 20 podcasts based on downloads and your recommendations at thepodcastradio.co.uk. Number 20 this week, The Michael Knowles Show. Michael goes beyond the headlines, analysing the top cultural and political issues of the day. At 19, the Adam Buxton podcast. Adam has a ramble chat with interesting people. His latest guest is Holly Walsh. They talk about stand-up, boarding schools and farts. My guest this week is the writer and director and producer... Ken Levine. His podcast is called Hollywood and Levine. One of the many shows you'll know him from is MASH. Here's a clip from his podcast. He's talking to Jamie Farr, who played Klinger. 1972, MASH goes on the air, and the fourth episode is Chief Surgeon Who, and they're looking for a guy to play a corpsman who is trying to get out of the army by getting a Section 8 and uh, talking to Larry Gelbart, because I said, where did you come up with that? And he said, Lenny Bruce did something like that where he wore a waves uniform. It was to- in the Coast Guard. Yeah. Yeah. yeah exactly yeah. right. Yeah. And uh, talk a little bit about that audition and that first episode. Audition for that ah, part. I'll they just you, gave it to you, huh? I'll tell you how that happened. Uh, I, I, I was having a rough time of it at that time. I've had ups and downs in this business. I was always being discovered or something was happening, and then it would uh, peter out and nothing would happen. And so at that particular time, a buddy and I, were we were trying to create some game shows and do some writing, and I got this phone call. Uh, from uh, uh, the agency, not what was it, Meyer, Michigan? <laughs> it was <laughs> Lou Deucer. <laughs> and uh, uh, I had done a uh, uh, F troop uh, for High Averback, and I played a stand up comic Indian. They had taken all the Henny Youngman's jokes, uh-huh. and they had taken all the Milton Burl's jokes, and made them Indian jokes. So the chief of the Hakawi tribe uh, has, is auditioning me, you know, for their big event. And Gene Reynolds was the director of the show. And so I, he got a kick out of all the stuff that I was doing. And it was very, very funny. And, of course, the, the punchline, Artie Julian wrote the, Arthur Julian wrote the, uh, the script. 
and uh, the the punchline is after I'd auditioned as the uh, as the comedian for the Hakawi tribe was uh, he, he says the chief says uh, well look at uh, look don't don't smoke signal us we'll smoke signal you you know <laughs> that was the punchline well Gene whenever he liked an actor or an actress he had a little book a little black book and he'd write the names down of people and uh, I get this phone call and it says hey. Uh, there's a show called MASH. It's off of that movie. And I said, geez, I haven't seen the movie, but I heard about it. He said, there's a part in it for you. And Gene Reynolds is, is directing and, or is producing the show. Show, excuse me. And he says, they, they want you to come out. It pays $250 for the day. And I said, well, what's the part? He says, well, th- they'll tell you when, when they see you. And I said, okay, great. Hey, listen, you know, I had to pay my rent. Joy and I were, uh, you know, only been married for about eight or nine years. And, and I'd been up and down with all kinds of jobs here and there. And we were striving to, to pay our rent and put food on the table. So I didn't care. I said, great, I'll, I'll show up. And I came in and I, uh, I, I met Gene and he took me into this trailer and uh, I said, well, what's the part? He says, uh, well, uh, he said, you see that? I said, yeah. I said, that's a wax outfit and uh, high heels. He says, I said, what am I dressing with a uh, actress here in the dressing room? She says, no, that's yours. <laughs> I said, what do you mean mine? He says, yeah, put them on. This is a car-. I said, well, what the part? He says, you'll see, you'll find out. So I, they had the correct sizes or whatever it was. I had the, the high heels on and the, my hairy bold legs and that. And he takes me by the hand and he takes me on to stage nine. And it was uh, E.W. Swackhammer that was the director of this. What a great name that is. I know. I'd worked for him at Screen (laughs) Jumps, but yeah, he was working the the episode, Chief Surgeon Who. Well, Alan and everybody started breaking up. Everybody was laughing, crafts and services and that. And I had no idea yet what I was supposed to say. And they finally handed me the script. And I was looking at it. And he says, well, these guys trying to get out of the the service and, and that. And and uh, then Gene and Larry left, Larry Galbart left, and Swackhammer was in charge now. And I said, I, how do you want me to play? He says, and he had me playing it uh, as, as a homosexual. He had me uh, lisping and saying, you know, right. all who goes there, mm-hmm. et cetera, and that. And I did what he told me to do, and, you know, $250. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so I did it, and... Uh, and then I get this phone call the next day, and my agent says, Jamie, uh, do you mind going back? They want to reshoot the scenes that you did. And I go, oh, my goodness, I felt so badly. I, I let Gene down. I mean, what did I do wrong? I did what the director had asked me to do. And they said that they'll pay another $250, but uh, they're going to have to reshoot it. So I came in, and... Gene and Larry were there, and they said, well, listen, we can't do it that way. That, that won't work. Uh, you know, we can't sustain it. He's, he's not getting out of the Army because he, 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 he's uh, a homosexual he, or attempting to be. He's getting out of the Army because he wants them to think they're crazy. He's crazy, and that's how he's going to do it. So how would you play it? And I said, well, now I'm desperate. I want to you know, keep the right, part. Right. <laughs> and uh, 
I said, well, I play it straight. You know, uh, instead of late, uh, he makes comments about himself, let the other people make comments about him, give him a cigar, and just let him talk straight, you know? And that's what he, that's his dress of the day. It was a great decision, Jamie. Yeah. (laughs) Ken Levine coming up soon, and he'll talk about his first permanent job as a sitcom writer, which didn't get off to a good start because of the quality of British sitcoms. It's the Pod 20, and at number 18 this week, it's Backspace and Beyond. The BBC's Zoe Kleinman and Susanna Streeter take a look at the latest tech news and how it affects us. Zoe, it's kids that are the ones that know tech gadgets the best, isn't it? I've got two kids, and the other day, one of them had a birthday party Zoom quiz with his mate. So he needed, uh, I think he took my laptop in the end, and he needed an, an, uh, an app for the quiz, so he was using my phone as well. And then the other one had... Um, Oh, I'm really struggling with the whole homeschooling business. That's another thing. So I've sort of outsourced it. So someone I know is giving him an hour's maths lesson a week. So he needed another device with Skype on it for that. And I just sort of found myself sitting there going, okay, I'll, um, I'll, I'll just read a book then. <laughs> I, you know, because every device that I have is sort of commandeered by my children. It's really interesting. And I know that, you know, we're very fortunate that, that we've got enough to go around. And I know that some families have really struggled with that. Yeah, and we've explored that as well haven't we we've explored that in our podcast the great digital divide that there exists right across the country because so many lessons have gone online um paper documents haven't been freely available for pupils to pick up their families to pick up from the schools which means that they're highly reliant on whether their parents have got laptops have got digital devices that they can use and when you're also still trying to work as well at the same time it means there's just not enough to go around there haven't been enough campaigns to ensure that those pupils around the country who don't have access to a laptop have got one so there is real concern that education is going to suffer and I think heading towards September that's something that we've really got to get to grips with if schools still don't go back fully uh, as is what's predicted at the moment. It's interesting. I had uh, a, a phone-in caller on, it was actually BBC London once, and they were trying to tell me the importance of getting kids into books. And it turned into an argument. So I was saying, what's the point? These kids are going to be looking at things on their screens. Why do we want them to get into books? We should be encouraging them to get into gadgets. I don't know where you stand on that. Probably a difficult position as a parent. Yeah, I think they need a break. I think, you know, in the evening, winding down, you need an hour and a half. You need an hour and a half, two hours to wind down. So we are really, in my house, really like no no gadgets in their rooms. Um, well, we've kind, of, we've kind of actually relented on that with a 13-year-old who's got the Xbox now in his room for the first time. But it goes off and woe betide if he puts it on past, you know, nine o'clock. Uh-uh. <laughs> there's, like, there's a huge argument that ensues he's tried it once and then you know he has to read books and that's what um you know that's what I think is really really important and my younger ones definitely you know they need to read proper books I'm not even so keen on a kindle late at night because I still think it's got that reflective screen but you know the rest of the day absolutely you know let's get to grips that it's the future we've got to make sure that they are not not just able to you know use an iPad but to code to 
to make sure that they can video edit because these are all the skills. And actually, it's interesting because I, I hosted a conference on autonomous shipping last year and uh, they were talking about the new skills that all of these um, land seafarers would need in the future to be able to command these ships from 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 land rather than being on them and um, they were talking about the skills they needed and I said do you know what that's the skills that my 13 year old is building up playing Fortnite because the the <laughs> skills that they actually and and they agreed with me the the heads of these big shipping organizations said yeah that's what we want we want those types of skills the teamwork the rapidity of thought and um, able to respond very very quickly on screen to what's happening so these skills are they're building up in games will be useful. I think we need to um, rethink our perspective on tech. I think we're t- we tend to be quite snobby about it, don't we? And we sort of think, well, screen time is somehow a waste of time. If you're on your screen and you're messing about, you're not doing what you should be doing and you sh- there's something more worthy and useful that you should be doing with your time. But what we forget is how much we do you know let's just take the phone let's just take one device your phone you're communicating you're socializing you may well be doing your online banking you might be looking at the weather forecast you know you might be writing on it you might be broadcasting I mean there are so many different things that you can do on that one device now and while yes mindlessly scrolling through social media might not feel like a good use of your time if you don't think it is you know you could argue that social media platforms now are on a par with the big news organizations they are how people get their news and who are we to say that there's something inferior about that you know I think I think this sort of screen time debate really needs revisiting and we need to we need to remember that exactly what it is that we are doing when we're using our devices because I'm not convinced that it is all a waste of time. Zoe Kleinman and Zoe and Susanna Streeter have their podcast Backspace and Beyond. They'll also be on this show again next week right here on the Pod 20. Back to the countdown now. At number 17, Polonium and the Piano Player. It's November 2006 and piano player Derek Conlon is sucked into one of the world's most notorious assassinations when ex-KGB spy Alexander Litvinenko is attacked with Polonium in London's Millennium Hotel. Witness, suspect and possible target of the Russian state, Derek's fate hangs in the balance. This is a great podcast from Sky News Storycast. At 16, Hollywood and Levine. The podcast from this week's special guest, Ken Levine. Ken, you and your writing partner, David Isaacs, have worked on so many sitcoms. What was the first long-running show you worked on? It was our first staff assignment was on the Tony Randall show. Okay. Which was for MTM. Yeah. And (laughs) it's a funny Tony Randall story that people in England will appreciate. So... We write a script freelance for the Tony Randall show, and they liked it so much that they invited us to join the staff, which was great. Yeah. Yeah. And this is your first staff job, too. This is our first staff job, and it's MTM. It's Camelot. (laughs) This fantastic. And we're writing for Tony Randall. Oh my God. Yeah. So the first day we come on the stage the cast gathers together to have a table reading where they all read the script out loud. And there had just been a one-week hiatus prior to this. And they're doing our script. So 
cast is sitting around the table and the writers, we're all sitting around the table. And Tony says, before I start, I, I'd like to say something. During the hiatus week, I went to London. And while in London, I got a chance to watch some of the British sitcoms of the day. And after watching those, I can say conclusively that the stuff we do here in America is shit. <laughs> okay, now let's read The Tony Randall Show by Ken Levine and David Isaacs. Ken Levine, his podcast is called Hollywood and Levine, and more from him in a bit when I'll talk about the movie he co-wrote starring Tom Hanks and John Candy. It's the Pod 20, and at number 15 this week, it's Eden's End, a radio drama from Sean Williamson. You'll know him as Barry from EastEnders. Sean, before you were an actor, you worked at the post office, and drinking became a big part of your life. I think the only problem is with the post office, and don't get me wrong, uh, uh, no one twists your arm up behind your back, but is that um, when you finish work, of course, it's midday, and mm. you've been up since four o'clock, mm. so you feel as thirsty as an office worker does at five o'clock. Yeah. So uh, if, if you're young and single, you tend to have a few at lunchtime and then go back in the, out in the evening and have a few with your mates. So, uh, yeah, I was pretty, I did drink too much during that time, uh, certainly. But um, I, I realised I was an alcoholic when I was in the Navy because you can't have a drink for six weeks. Yeah. So, and, and then when I finally got into drama school, I, I really knocked it on the head because I realised that this is it. This is my chance to do something. This is a golden opportunity at the age of 27 to turn my life around. So, uh, yeah, it never got a hold of me, but certainly in the early years, yeah. Yeah, was, I, uh, I, I can relate. I did breakfast radio for a long time, so it was similar yeah. hours, and uh, and I was putting away a lot of drink, yeah. and I, I had to knock it on the head. I haven't had a drink since 98. Do you still have a drink? <laughs> yeah, I can still do it socially or, or, or leave it. I, I sort of made a list of things I'm missing during lockdown, and it was like seeing my children regularly, a trip to the pub on a Sunday lunchtime, and a distant third was work. Right, okay, <laughs> okay. But uh, now that's been replaced by, uh, that was after three weeks, but now it's obviously work has come to be a more prominent thing because of, you know, financial insecurity, really. Yeah. So I don't think, um, we didn't know at the start this would drag on for so long, or indeed, um, the, obviously, theatres will be the last things going back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Was it after the Navy you became a Pontins blue coat? Yeah, so th that's where my interest in entertaining people came from. Uh, I'd always been able to sing. That's that's the one thing I was always able to do from an early age. So when I was in the Navy, I used to keep people's spirits up or, or drive them mad by singing and telling jokes. So when I left, I thought, well, what's the next step? So uh, to me, it was to become a blue coat or a red coat. So I managed to get into Pontins and I spent a lovely summer on the Isle of Wight. And then I took over from Shane Ritchie, actually. Did you? Wow. A uh, little calendar on the Isle of Wight. And then it was like, okay, I think I can do this. Then how do you, where do you make that leap from that to acting? So that's where the amateur dramatics came in, just to see if I had the aptitude to do it. And that was why you went to do amateur dramatics? It wasn't to meet girls? Well, it's always a bonus because, as they say, you know, they're, they're always looking, even now, they're looking for young men because young men are self-conscious. Yeah. And, uh, you know, they, they don't want to stand up and make a fool of themselves. So, yeah, it was always a bonus because there was always lots of um, single women knocking about. But um, I, I, I found that I, I had the aptitude. I managed to win the Best Actor in Kent Award uh, for a play called A Day in the Death of Joe Egg, which was recently revived in the West End. Armed with that, I tried to get into drama school. The first year they went, no, go away, you're rubbish. And then the second year they took me on. 
it was quite late in life at 27 to get into drama school it wasn't is late. it yeah it is late i think one of the one of the bonuses is for any young people listening is that you don't have to retire at the other end so don't worry about you know joining it at 30 cuz you can carry on until you breathe your last breath really uh, as john gilgood was once asked you know what happens you know if you're in a wheelchair you go blind it's, well there's always radio <laughs> yeah well i can relate i didn't get into radio till i was 27 i i went to radio school in in at 27 there's something about that age isn't it? i mean they talk about you know the people who don't make it past 27 the likes of jim morrison and you know um amy I mean, amy winehouse yeah and i think janice joplin as well was 27 so yeah, i think there's just something about that. Club. i think hendrix was slightly older but yeah yeah, there's just something about that age that makes you go, no, th that's. I think that's your real midlife crisis is when you go, hang on, yes. I'm going to be 30 soon. I better get on with something I, that actually suits me. And I, I think it, it really is an important age to, to sort out what you're going to do. I, I think you're right because you can't get away anymore with youthful hijinks. I think that's what it is. You yeah. can get away with things up to your mid-20s and blame it on age or youth. But after that, you, you can't. And I think you're right. You've got to look at yourself in the mirror which is luckily what I did, what you did, and say, right, I've, I've got to go on a career path now and I've got to stick to it. Yeah. Even if it gets rocky, even if for a while it looks like it isn't going to work. And, and that's what we both did. You know? Yeah, yeah. You come out of drama school, well, you must have been about 30 by then though, wasn't you? I was 30 and uh, I got my agent from drama school. This is another, uh, a real rite of passage for an actor. Something you, you, you've got to get as an agent, or at least a good one. So I managed to get an agent from drama school and they fixed up some auditions for me. My very first job was as a paramedic in EastEnders. Yeah. Unbelievably. Six months later, they called me back up there to to do a, a, a reading for a character called Barry. They gave me the brief and it said, Barry is a big, good-looking blonde fellow. His friends called him Golden Boy. You know? <laughs> so you thought that's that? Yeah. So I thought, okay. And I'd found out the actor who was going to play uh, Roy, the dad, had pulled out and the wonderful Tony Corner replaced him. And I got the job purely because I looked like Tony Corner because Tony was a very well-established character. He's numerous films. Uh, he was in The Chief years ago. Honestly, he's, he's, it's just, uh, if you look at any actor of, of, of that area of the 50s, 60s and 70s, there was, you realise how much there was the Wednesday play, play for today. There was so much more drama being made and so many more opportunities for actors. And Zed Cars, you know, uh, Dick, Dixon and Doc Green, there were so many more... Um, drama series and he, he was in the hill the film with sean connery he yeah. was in get carter yeah, yeah. so you know he, he'd had he'd had a wonderful career and he confessed to me he said this is like some wonderful indian summer you know he said he thought this would be the autumn of my career it's like some wonderful indian summer and we had 10 wonderful years together and so you were cast because you were more believable as his son was that the reason then he looked more like my dad than my own dad <laughs> right right i see so that show business just looks a lot of it is just, just total luck yeah yeah. I mean, you had to be talented and be able to do the job too. So I don't want to take anything away there, but just to let people know how these things work, everything has to I, line I think up. what it is, yeah. And, and also, as you say, they only signed me on for four episodes. So if I hadn't cut the mustard in that time, I wouldn't have gone back. Yeah. Or suddenly six months later, Barry would have come back as a different actor. Do you know what I mean? And it happens all the time. Yeah, yeah. But luckily, they, they saw something. I think what happened was when I first started, Barry was supposed to be a villain he set fire to the car lot. He, he, he abducted Cindy's kids out of school so that she could abscond with them to meet David Wicks down at the Eurostar. Um, but then I think more and more they saw this humour creeping through that didn't quite match an out-and-out out villain. 
Yeah. So when a wonderful actor called Paul Bradley left, Paul was one of the big comedy characters. Nigel used to wear big kipper ties, and Nigel had an afros. Um, I think he joined Holby City. He's still in Holby City. When he left, they sort of shoehorned me in to to, to fill the, that that comedy character really. So Nigel sort of became Barry, as it were, and, and from being a villain, I then couldn't walk down the street without tripping on a banana skin. But yeah, it gave me another eight years in the show. So there you go, Sean Williamson, and his podcast is called. Eden's End. At 14 this week, it's the Mark Levin podcast. Mark is one of the most listened to local radio talk show hosts in the USA. 13, Today in Focus, from the Guardian newspaper. I'm Graham Mack, and this is the Pod 20, the definitive countdown of the top 20 podcasts right now, based on downloads and your recommendations at thepodcastradio.co.uk. The show is available on multiple platforms. Just Google it. Piper Terrett from the Lockdown Lowdown podcast. Your mum is a funny word for Google, doesn't she? Goggly eye. Have you looked that up on goggly eye? (laughs) (laughs) Goggly eye makes more sense because you're looking for something. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Because I always thought eBay had the wrong name. Oh, yeah. It's it's not a bay. Why isn't it called eBid? It's a bloody auction E-bid. site. You got so close. Yeah, it should be called yeah. eBid. But I mean, uh, people call it Flea Bay, don't they? They call it Flea yeah. Bay. Well, I call what's it? Um, what's the one I had an issue with when they put my house for from put my flat for rental on it? What was that? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mug tree. Yeah. Mug tree. Gum yeah. tree. Yeah. yeah mug tree. It's the mugs. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Well, I call fa- Facebook a faceache. Yeah, I call it faceache as well. Do you? Yeah. There's two things I want to do. First of all, I want to have a social me- an anti-social media website yes. where you can put lists of people on there that you don't want to bug you <laughs> and call it Get Out of My Facebook. <laughs> and the other one I want to do is combine YouTube, Spotify, Twitter and Facebook, I want to combine them into one giant time-wasting website called You Spotty Twit Face. <laughs> I'm Graham Mack, and this is The Pod 20, number 12 this week. It's The Daily Show with Trevor Noah, Ears Edition. Listen to highlights and extended interviews in the Ears Edition of The Daily Show from Comedy Central's Podcast Network. At 11, For the Many, a podcast presented by LBC's Ian Dale and the Labour politician and former Home Secretary, Jackie Smith. Ian's a friend of the show. Let's talk about your LBC show. You've been presenting it from your bedroom during lockdown. How has that changed the programme? It's really difficult for me to judge because having done a lot of outside broadcasts, it didn't phase me doing it remotely. Um, It is different because obviously you haven't got that... Uh, I haven't seen my producers since the 17th of March. Um, We have a chat about two o'clock in the afternoon. They tell me what they're thinking about doing in the news hour. I feed in what my thoughts. I leave them to it, basically, to do that. Um, We have the open phone in at eight, so that that doesn't need any preparation. And then they they do all of the um, organisation of the nine o'clock phone-ins. So I don't actually have a lot of preparation to do, far less than if I was in Leicester Square. Um, I do a long-term preparation. In if I'm trying to get a cabinet minister on, that sort of thing, I tend to do that uh, a lot myself. Um, a friend of mine said to me that he thinks I sound a lot more personal and intimate when I'm broadcasting from home. 
Um, which I suppose, if you're in your bedroom, I mean, you, you are going to be, I suppose. But the technology has really stood up well. I, I was the kind of guinea pig for all of this because I'm type 2 diabetic. So when it all started, um, I remember on, I think it must have been the, is it Monday the 16th, 17th of March, I just said to Tom Cheel, um, my boss, I said, you know what, um, I think I ought to do a test programme at home, maybe Wednesday, Thursday this week, because if this gets serious... I don't want to come in here. Um, and he said, absolutely, let's do that. Then James Rear, who used to be used to run LBC, but now is the, the big boss at Global Radio, um, he came down for a chat about something else. And I said, oh, by the way, I'm, I'm going to do a programme from home on Wednesday or Thursday. So we actually did it the next day. And my Wi-Fi connection here is not the best. And I was really nervous about doing it. Um, and I ordered, bizarrely, given that they're being phased out, an ISDN, as a, either to do it sort of properly or as, as a backup. But it, it, I had to pull a few strings to get one fitted. But then about 10 days later, they came to fit it. And, and the guy got out of his van. He said, oh, I can't come in the house. I said, well, how are you going to fit it then? And he said, well, I can't come in the house. That's a new rule. I said, well, what, what is the point of you turning up when you're telling me that you can't fit it? And I presume they get some sort of payment for turning up. I don't know. So, but by that time, we knew that it worked. I have what's called a media port box, which I didn't really understand what that did. But it, 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 you plug it into the router and it's also got SIM cards for all the major uh, tele telephone companies in it. And it chooses which has the best signal and then sends the signal back to Leicester Square. And in, I must have done... 40 or 50 programs now and the line has only dropped twice and I think the quality if you didn't know I was broadcasting from home I doubt whether you would know just if you were a regular listener so the technology has worked really well and and they, they're now they've now rolled it out for quite a few presenters not all of them um but it it does work with the odd glitch. But listeners don't care about glitches. In fact, they quite like it when things go wrong. It's just how you handle it. And I had, a, I had an incident the other night in the mental health hour. It was about quarter to ten. And I, we had a guy, Stephen Bolton, who was feeling suicidal. Well, I mean, you, you know as well as I do what an important conversation that can be. So I was chattering away, and we had Emma Kenny on with me um, again remotely. I was chattering away, and then I suddenly realised that my line had dropped. I dialed in again. It took about two minutes because I had to reboot my computer. And I expected the emergency tape to be playing, but Emma was still talking to Stephen Bolton. And so I just typed on the screen, back. Do you know what? They hadn't even noticed I'd gone. <laughs> I thought, well, that's nice. I'm the presenter of my own programme. They didn't even know that I wasn't there. Ian Dale, his podcast uh, that he does with Jackie Smith is called For The Many. It's at number 11 this week. Number 10 is Real Dictators, the podcast series hosted by Paul McGann that explores the hidden lives of history's tyrants. This week, it's Joseph Stalin, part three. At number nine, Guru, the Dark Side of Enlightenment. James Arthur Ray was an Oprah-endorsed self-help teacher. Friends and family of his followers questioned his unorthodox methods and tried to stop him. This one is hosted by the journalist Matt Stroud. Back to the chart in a bit right now, though. Let's catch up with my special guest, the host of the Hollywood and Levine podcast. It is Ken Levine. He's a scriptwriter. In 85, 
Ken, you and your writing partner David Isaacs wrote a movie called Volunteers, which starred Tom Hanks and John Candy. What do you think of that film? At the time we saw the movie, all I could see was the faults. There's shifts in tone and certain battles that we had with the director that we lost, uh, certain things that really I find kind of cringeworthy. But like a lot of it worked. And interestingly, about a year ago, sitting at home and I have nothing to do, and I said, all right, let me go through my library and watch a movie. And I came across Volunteers and I said, you know, I haven't actually watched this in years and years. And I know it shows up all the time on HBO and various channels. It does really well in the ratings. Thank you to whoever watches it. So I, I put it on. I figured, you know what? I can always turn this off at any point. I know it happens. And I, I wound up watching the whole movie. <laughs> and I like it so much better now than yeah. I did then. You're too close to it. Yeah. Yeah, well, exactly. And maybe in comparison to what is considered a comedy now, but it was very smart and it had a story and it moved along and it had a romance and it's filled with a lot of funny lines that come out of character. I mean, there are a couple of lines now with today's sensitivity that that uh, I would remove. Yeah. <laughs> that that I that I'm not proud of. But again, we wrote that 35 years ago. And so, yeah, I'm I'm proud of volunteers. Ken Levine his podcast is called Hollywood and Levine and just hang on there Ken cuz in a minute I want to find out about when you appeared on The Simpsons. Let's keep counting down this chart. Number 8 this week, Desert Island Discs. This week's castaway is Jens Stoltenberg, the head of NATO. At seven, it's that Peter Crouch podcast. Ken Levine, you're a writer, director and producer, and you've even done a bit of acting on The Simpsons. Oh, man, I did everything on The Simpsons, Graham. I did everything on The Simpsons. I'm also kind of an amateur cartoonist, and it was an episode called Dancing Homer. Wait. You YouTube people. There he is. <laughs> there he is. Dancing Homer, holding it up. Podcast people have no idea what I'm talking about. Um, <laughs> held up a Dancing Homer doll. Yeah. He becomes a, a mascot for the minor league team, and he gets to move up to the major leagues to substitute for the Capital City Goofball. And I designed the Capital City Goofball. You designed it. I designed it, yeah. Wow. And they used my design. So it was like, oh, man, there's like a cartoon character. And for the minor league team, they wanted to have an announcer. So I said, uh, I'll announce. I'll, you, <laughs> you know, got the experience. I got the experience. I'll do it. So I am the voice of the Springfield Isotopes. There's some nut down in right field dancing up a storm. He's really got the crowd going. Let's see if it can shake up mediocre slugger Big Bill McCloskey. Swung on and belted to deep left field. It's going, going, it's gone, it's out of here. Oh my God, the Isotopes win a game. The Isotopes win a game. The 
was certainly exciting. Ken Levine, my guest this week, he's a writer, he's a director, he's a producer, and he's also an actor and played a baseball commentator in The Simpsons because he is a play-by-play baseball commentator. He'll talk more about that on next week's show. Coming up on this week's show, I want to find out how he got started as a sitcom writer. But first of all, let's get back to the chart. At number six is where we're at. It's revisionist history. This is Malcolm Gladwell's journey through the overlooked and misunderstood Every episode re-examines something from the past, an event, a person, an idea, even a song, and asks whether we got it right the first time. At number five, Rob Beckett and Josh Widdicombe's Lockdown Parenting Hell. It's parenting, just not as you know it. So, Ken Levine, the podcast is called Hollywood and Levine, but pretty much you've made most of your living as a sitcom writer with your partner David Isaacs. Now, when you were trying to get your first break, you wrote a spec script for the Mary Tyler Moore show. Did you get that gig? Oh, no, they hated it. Okay. But we decided we're going to take two years and we are going to just keep writing script after script after script and figured that sometime in a two-year period, somebody is going to recognize our talent. And we were very lucky because it only took six months. And uh, the story editor of The Jeffersons, which really had just premiered only a few weeks before, he read our Mary Tyler Moore show and really liked it and invited us to come in and pitch an episode of The Jeffersons. And that we sold. And so that was our first assignment. Who better than a couple of, you know, white Jewish kids uh, <laughs> writing the episodes of the Jeffersons. <laughs> but that was our, our entry into the, the business. And a funny story, Graham, we worked out the outline with the producers, and then the producers sent us off to write the script and gave us two weeks to write the script, which is plenty of time. The only problem was that that was the two-week window that we had to go on active duty for our Army Reserve summer camp. And it's not like uh, jury duty, where you can just write in and say, you know what, it's kind of inconvenient for me at this time. I'll go in October. It's like, no. No, you report or the military police throw you in jail. So David and I had to go to Fort Ord, California for the two-week period that we had to write the Jeffersons, and we would write it at night in the barracks. (laughs) And the barracks were just as you've always seen in movies like Full Metal Jacket, you know, where there are these, these giant cavernous rooms with 80 bunk beds all lined up. So if you can picture the scene where... These guys are playing cards, they're smoking dope, they're listening to Jimi Hendrix records, and David and I are sitting on a bunk in the corner going, Wheezy, you come over here a minute. <laughs> and uh, th- that's, that's how we wrote our first script. And we needed a typewriter, which, you know, you can't fit in your duffel bag. So we, one night, broke into an office... <laughs> And uh, and we used their typewriter, and we we typed the script, and um, so that was that was our first assignment. 
And it all got going from there. It's Ken Levine. I'm Graham Mack. This is the Pod 20, the definitive countdown of the top 20 podcasts based on downloads and your recommendations at thepodcastradio.co.uk. Number four this week, it's the Joe Rogan Experience. And at three, it's Grounded with Louis Theroux. My special guest is Ken Levine, the host of the podcast Hollywood and Levine. You were one of the writers on MASH. When I talked to Alan Alda on this show, I brought up censorship and a line that you wrote for the show where Radar was asked to take a visitor to the VIP tent. Yeah, and we said, write this way your vip V-I-P written out, and then N-E-S-S, and yeah. that they flagged. Well, is there anything else that, that you came up against that, that you think should have gone on but didn't, or just a silly censorship story? We had a big fight with them once over, <laughs> over Potter saying, I'm too old for this crap. Really? Yeah, we got a big fight, and we won that one. There was a, a knockdown, dragout battle, but we won that. And then y- years later, it's like on Everybody Loves Raymond, you know, Peter Boyle has a line like, you know, oh crap, or whatever it is. It's like a catchphrase. You know, you could put it on t shirts. Yeah. But back in those days, uh, we couldn't do that. And they would always say to us, whenever they received a script, cut the casual profanity in half. Right. So if there were eight hells and dams that we wanted in the script, we put in 16. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it was just this this silly game that that we would play with the censors. But by and large, I would say, you know, look, we weren't, you know, a, a very suggestive show yeah. uh, we weren't trying to slip in a lot of double entendres you know uh, we weren't very salacious it wasn't like three's company or something you know where you know we're really kind of living and dying by you know being lascivious so it it really wasn't that big of an issue i mean boy when you look at cbs then and you look at the level of interference now yeah. that goes on i mean it's just staggering back in those days all we had to do was send cbs like a log line to what the episode was going to be you know hawkeye has claustrophobia and they have to uh evacuate and go in a cave something that's that's all we would say yeah we would fall behind on those and they would call and say, please get us caught up. But we were giving log lines on episodes that we had filmed. Right. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so it's not like they could come back and go, uh, no, we don't approve this show. They, they filmed it. It's, yeah. it's in the can. <laughs> you know, it airs Monday night. Enjoy it. <laughs> Ken Levine's podcast is called Hollywood and Levine, and he'll be back next week to talk about how he got a gig as a writer on America's number one sitcom at the time. We're heading for number one on the podcast chart this week, and one space off at number two, Shagged, Married, Annoyed. The only way Rosie and Chris Ramsey can have a conversation without being interrupted by a toddler or ending up staring at their phones is by doing a podcast. And we have a brand new number one 
straight in at the top of the chart. It is the Joe Wicks podcast. Joe Wicks asks some of his inspiring mates about their secrets of physical and mental happiness. His latest guest is Gordon Ramsay. That's it for episode 12 of the Pod 20. I'm Graham Mack, and thanks to this week's guest podcasters, Ken Levine, Ian Dale, Piper Terrett, Zoe Kleinman, Susanna Streeter, and Sean Williamson. If you'd like to watch extended Zoom chats with all of my guests, check them out on YouTube and subscribe to my YouTube channel. Next week, my guest is the TV critic Boyd Hilton. Boyd, you're the entertainment director at Heat magazine. You're involved at the Pilot magazine and you write for The Guardian, The Evening Standard, The Huffington Post, GQ, Empire and When Saturday Comes... You're heard on 5 Live, Radio 4, and you're involved with BAFTA. You're on the excellent Pilot TV podcast, too. Thanks, Graham. That's, uh, that was a great list. Amazing. It is quite, it's quite a list you've built up there. What qualifies you to be a TV critic, then? Oh, nothing. I mean, um, <laughs> uh, no, that's not true. I would say I've been watching TV obsessively since I, was, since I can remember, since I was, I don't know, five or something, and... Um, have built up some level of of um, expertise when it comes to uh, knowledge of television and then writing about it. I'll leave others to judge and talking about it, whether I have any expertise on that level. But I'm certainly obsessed with television, so yeah. And film to a large extent as well. Boyd Hilton, my special guest next week on The Pod 20. And what will happen on the podcast chart next week? Will Joe Wicks stay at number one? Will Louis Theroux return to the top for a third time? Will your favourite podcast make it to the number one spot? Find out with me, Graham Mack, and influence the chart by making a recommendation at thepodcastradio.co.uk. On the morning of August 1st, 1966, shots ring out from the observation deck of the clock tower on the University of Texas campus. It marks the infamous beginning of the modern era of mass shootings in America. You're listening to Stop the Killing podcast. Join us as we take you behind the crime scene tape to explain global mass shootings and mass attacks. I'm Sarah Ferris, but more importantly, this is Catherine Schweitz, the former head of the FBI's active shooter program. I spent five years as the FBI's top executive looking for answers to the mass shooting crisis. I've been at the shooting scenes. I've traced heroic acts of bravery and I've sat silently and listened to the heart-wrenching stories from survivors. Amongst this horror, there is hope. We all hold the key to stop the killing. You just need to know how to unlock the door. Download Stop the Killing and be part of the solution. Search Stop the Killing on Apple, Spotify, and all the usual suspects.